Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to Slice of Cheese with Jenny Linford on Food FM. Savor the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Hello, welcome to A Slice of Cheese, the Food FM radio series that celebrates the world of cheese. I'm Jenny Linford, a food writer and cheese enthusiast, the author of Great British Cheeses. Cheese is a delicious and fascinating food, and we're setting out to explore this remarkable food and share the stories of the people who make, sell and love it. For centuries, farms were the places where cheese was made, transforming precious, perishable milk into food which could be stored and sold. We talked to British farmer and Cheshire cheesemaker Sarah Appleby of Hawkstone Abbey Farm and American farmer and cheesemaker Andy Hatch of the Uplands Cheese Company in Wisconsin about the rewards and the challenges of farmhouse cheesemaking. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. This week on A Slice of Cheese, very happy to have with me today, Sarah Appleby of Appleby's Dairy. Good morning, Sarah. Hi, Jenny. Uh, Sarah, I very much wanted you on this episode because we're looking at the idea of farmhouse cheese. Appleby's leapt to mind and you are very famous for a cheese that you make on your farm. Perhaps you could tell us what that is and give us a little bit of the history behind that cheese. Oh, thanks, Jenny. Yeah. So we have been farming here for three generations and the cheese that we make because we live in this place is Cheshire, which A, I think is really fascinating. So it's something that is inherited, but inherited from way, way, way further back in those three generations. Three, three generations in cheesemaking is, is a nanosecond in a way mm-hmm. when you're talking about one of those foods that, that's been a, around for millennia. So, but what fascinates me is, is that obviously the Cheshire is Cheshire because of the area and because when my husband Paul's grandparents moved here in the late 1940s moved their cows here and grandma came from a, a line of female cheesemakers because I think last time I spoke to you we were talking about women in we cheesemaking were. and yes. so grandma yeah which is really again really fascinating and so grandma she uh, of course made Cheshire she started in 1952 here in the dairy that is right next to our so she started 1952 and she had seven children wheeled the pram between the, the the kitchen and the dairy and you know and and thus it is still now because my husband Paul is cheesemaker and you know it's lovely that it's that it's still such a part of family life so yeah that's that's where we're at and Cheshire is something that sounds you know that we slightly fell into but we didn't fall into it that cheshire was made here because of um many reasons one being obviously the minerality i can't say that jenny the minerality yeah that's wonderful i mean it's it's a, it's a beautiful cheese your cheshire cheese it's really is a is a joy and it's a very you know a famous traditional cheese you know with this long history of being made and eaten, it, you know, for a long time it was the sort of best-selling cheese in Britain. But so today we're looking at this idea of farmhouse cheese, 
And and of course, you know, farms with cows was where cheese was made. You know, historically, this is this is very ancient, and the fact that it's still this practice carries on today, you know, is something to be to be welcomed, I think, and embraced. And I wanted to sort of get into that story. So as you've you've got a herd of dairy cattle, they're on your land. What are the things that you're doing with the land? Perhaps you could tell us about. And in fact, actually, that's very relevant to the Cheshire story. The idea. Tell us about that. About the the salinity in the soil and how that expresses yeah. itself through the milk. Oh. Yeah, I think that's you know one of the fascinating things about the terroir, isn't it? The the why the British territorial cheeses are as they are, you know, they're obviously um, of an area, so of a territory. So mm. Cheshire, yeah, so when when Grandma and Grandpa moved here and walked the cows and very much that symbiotic relationship between the farming and the cheese making was very strong in those days. And I think when there were, at the turn of the century, about 2,000 Cheshire cheesemakers, because you're absolutely right, it was the cheese that fed the nation mm. at the turn of the century. Um, what's so interesting is that those 2,000 Cheshire cheesemakers here were very small herds, but they they had the cows. The, the, they didn't buy in the milk. The milk was, was obviously produced, and the surplus milk was made into cheese as a way of feeding people and prolonging the life of, of milk, which obviously is um, has a short shelf life, we'd call mm. it nowadays. But, um, you know, that's really fascinating. And, and as Grandpa farmed and grew the farm, um, grew and he had more, more cows, it was still very important, that relationship. And looking back at Grandma's make books, uh, in those books from 1952, she talks about the paddocks that the cows were grazing ah. and, you know, maybe they had dandelions on. And, you know, that relationship between the farming, uh, so the land, the grass, the cows, the type of cow, where they were grazing that day, what the weather was like. Um, I just think that is one of the hugely wonderful things of territorial cheeses, that real long connection of the milk story which I really love and when we're tasting cheese we've just uh, tasted this morning um Paul and I and Tom are mm -hmm. um, cheesemaker the the cheese the discussions that we have I think you know would be similar to those ones back in you know 1926 when the 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 cheeses I think something like 120 tons went from Whitchurch Market on the Christmas cheese train. And those wonderful photos of the, the chaps with their big moustaches that were grading, which I'm, I'm not massively keen on that word, but we're, we're tasting and selecting cheeses. Then I think they would they would have known those farmers, the, the, the names of the families that were making the cheeses. And I don't know, I think it's it's what for me makes it so interesting. Um, and, and the relationship with the farm has been something that Paul and I have worked really hard to develop because it was definitely so with grandma and grandpa. And then we, we you know, the, the farming that we did, I think would be, you would probably have heard this before, that it, it definitely went more for yield and, you know, more farmers had Holstein Frisians and that's when a lot of these Cheshire farms, uh, you know, the dem demise of Cheshire cheese yeah. was a bit in part with that because liquid milk became more valuable and, you know, we, we were we were changing our relationship with the cows and actually Paul and I very strongly about five years ago decided that the farm was sort of going in a way that we weren't um, feeling that it the relationship with the cheese wasn't so close, it was becoming a bit more tenuous. So we now all the cows, um, you know, go out to graze as soon as possible. You know, they went out early March, which is right. the cheese we were tasting this morning, which was fascinating. Those conversations about, oh, wow, gosh, you can tell the butterfat protein has changed. And hmm. um, one cheese was really dandelion-y, that the, you know, the grassiness was really apparent. So... That's yeah, interesting. So, so you've decided in a way to sort of, I don't know, make stronger what the connection between the, the this is a farm that makes cheese and so that the milk is for cheese making. I mean, I know this is something that often I discuss in this program, what makes good milk for cheese making. Is that one of your, your missions then with, you know, when you talked about trying to redress the balance on the farm? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Because I think for the territorial cheeses like ours that you know, we do 
talk about the salinity, obviously the, the saltiness came from this area around Cheshire, Shropshire, you know, also into Wales, that that's where there are still the salt mines and we still buy our salt from that middle witch, north, uh, north mm. witch, which obviously meaning W-I-C-H, meaning um, the saltiness. So, yes, uh, yeah, I think being able to stand behind your cheese and, and discuss it and communicate it with other people, it really resonates, doesn't it? Being able to say, well, you know, this is from this area, so therefore it tastes like this because of of the way that we farm. And I think agriculture is, you know, it's changed over over the centuries, but being able to taste that sense of place for me is really, really important. Um, yeah, it's something that I, we, we really, did it you know made these changes on purpose a because i'm an organic dairy farmer's daughter and i can't stand mm. the fact that grass is growing and i think cows should be out grazing um and and you know it makes milk is a wonderful wonderful product and the fact that we don't send all of ours away in a tanker you know we bring it around and put it in the vat in the farmhouse dairy is is absolutely joyous yeah, that's a very wonderful, you know, that sort of magic. I mean, I had um, I talked to Joe Schneider, who makes Stitchelton cheese, and he yes, painted this, yeah. you know, this very eloquent picture of, you know, looking at, you know, the grass that the cow he sees from his window, that it, the, you oh, know, yeah. that it's eating yeah. the grass, that is the milk that he's working with, you know, the next, you know, the next day. I mean, it's like this, this it's wonderful. It's a privilege. Yeah. Yeah, it's an absolute privilege. And I hear, because Paul was much more on the farm until recently, and our cheesemaker, Gary, retired last Christmas, which was, yeah, really, he had a wonderful, wonderful time since he was 26, cheesemaker here. So amazing. really learnt his craft with grandma as well. And yep. having that, then that relationship with Paul and I and um, making so many changes to the way we farm, he really had this wonderful swan song where things came together. And I remember him saying, you know, this really feels like it did when he started what oh, you know, um, that's lovely years, isn't it 50 years or so what, yeah, so what really in terms lovely. of the so the milk he could see obviously he was making the cheese so he could yeah. see that these these changes yeah. reflected isn't that interesting gosh the changes and the, the conversations and i think you know for paul i mean he was when uh this happened in the you know the pandemic and everything was was you know everything was slightly different the mm. um paul was milking the cows and making the cheese. And he said, what, what a wonderful thing to do. The, the way that you've seen, you know, you walk the cows out in the morning and you see which paddock they are and you, you, you are touching that grass and then, mm. you know, they come into milk and then you bring that milk round and you make the cheese from it and you put the cheese in the storeroom. And yeah, it is, it is really poetic, isn't it? And, and there's a lot of graft, but there is also oh, yes. something really lovely about it. And I would agree with Joe, you know, I'm sat here and I can look out and see the fields and see the cows grazing and it, yeah, it gives it a sense of, purpose and a sense of space doesn't it yeah that's um, that's lovely i mean that's it's very interesting hearing how much it means isn't it and this sort of you know and cheese making is hard work and, and yeah. but then there are the satisfactions that it offers too and um so perhaps in fact you perhaps you should talk us through you know it'd be really interesting to hear a little bit about how so using raw it's a raw milk one of the definitions of farmhouse cheese is that it's you know a to start with it's made on a farm but by farmers using their own milk that's very important and off and using their own raw milk is also very central to that i think that's, that's something that's very precious to you is it using using unpasteurized milk yes yeah i think um you know once you've put so much is invested into that looking at the soil structure and the worm counts and, and, you know, the grass seeds that we're sowing. And it's difficult, isn't it, the, the, the milk? Because there's other pressures, aren't there? The TB, I don't know. That's, that's, a, that's a big um, worry, isn't it? Yeah. It's a big worry. And we are due our test next month. And although we wouldn't ever not want to make raw milk cheese, because I, I, I think, you know, the, the just the flavour is so delicious without having to to have a process uh, through which the milk passes before it goes into the vat to make the cheese 
that we can't perhaps be so rose-tinted glasses that sometimes there are outside pressures that mean that we have to be a bit resilient and think outside the box and and you know at, at some point each of us raw milk cheese makers have faced that awful mm. specter of, of tv and you know and i and i think that's the wonderful really wonderful thing about the specialist cheesemakers, whether we're farmhouse buying in milk pasteurizing that we are all such a great collaborative team that being able to mm. pick up the phone and speak to someone who's been there and you know can know how upsetting it is to put everything invested into that milk to then have to to pasteurize or, or yeah, yeah have a have a challenge is yeah it is really wonderful but yeah for for us for as long as we can keep um keep it raw milk then absolutely there's never been any there's never been any discussion actually about um right perhaps we should perhaps we should but there we are that that might be something I- down the line Yes, I mean that the threat from TV. It, it is serious, isn't it? It's, I think it's. I think it's good for people to realise the, you know, the actual difficulties in a way of of trying to, yeah. of of making cheese and of farming. Yeah. You know, they are considerable. Being resilient. They? Yes, that the, the word. Farming it's a very, resilience. Yes. Yeah. yeah I mean, and in fact, crazy. so tell me. Yeah. So perhaps we should have a think about what are the with your milk. Since given that you're on the farm and it doesn't have to travel, is that is that central to the cheese? You know, do you use it? pretty soon after after milking or do you how, how does it work in terms of making cheshire on your on your farm yeah so with the milk we use a mix of morning milk and night milk uh-huh. uh, they're, they're quite different with the butterfat protein ratio which is what we talk about don't we the cheese making it sounds like some sort of amazing formula doesn't it <laughs> um, yes but it's um yeah it is so it why is why would it be different just explain to LA, why why would it be different in the in the morning milk and the evening milk? Uh, because the cows are doing a different they're having a slightly different timetable to their day, I guess. They're they're on a when they go out in the morning, they go out and they graze and they snooze and they mooch around and they wander over to the water trough and we milk them at five o'clock in the morning and they come back in at about half past two, quarter to three. So, yeah, they've spent quite a bit of time grazing. And then they go back out again after they've finished milking. But their evenings are slightly different. They go on in a a fresh paddock and they graze all that off, but they'll spend more time snoozing. So, (laughs) yeah, the milk is different in the nighttime because the now I, my husband will tell me off for this he'll <laughs> be like no the, i always think it's slightly richer overnight because they've had more time hanging out and less time eating they may eat more delicious grass in the middle of the in the day yes and therefore the milk is richer in the evening milking is cheese made daily on the farm or uh, no at How the moment we make 3 to 4 days a week Right. Um, which suits us grand. We make about 42 or 3, 9 kilo cylindrical cheeses. Oh, this is radio, isn't it? <laughs> it is radio, um, yes. I can't see you. Are you shaking the shape? <laughs> I'll imagine shaving. it, I'll imagine it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yes, in a, in a year we make about 45 tonnes-ish of, of Cheshire cheese, which is a real sort of drop um a drop in the ocean but um, a delicious drop in the ocean can i insert yeah so oh, yes and um so i was also wondering given that you're you know you're working with with the milk on your farm making cheese throughout the year do you do you see the differences between it's one of the things that you'd see a difference between for example spring milk and winter milk is that because yep. the cows are being fed differently is that is that right definitely and that was one of our real not challenges but discussions with the likes of lovely david and bronwyn at neil's yard and mm. paxton Whitfield, and you know with our customers that when we made all these changes we also made changes to our carving 
pattern. Oh, okay. So there's a lot of dairy farmers that will carve all year round. There's a lot that will spring carve. There's a lot that will autumn. So we looked at our grazing platform. We looked at our herd. I'm a really big fan of talking to people and using mentors and just, you know, there's constantly things to find out and think will that suit my will that suit my cheese will that suit my cows will it suit the family I think that's one of the lovely things about being farmers and cheesemakers those those constant sort of discussions but then we moved our cows around into an autumn block so they start carving in August and what I really love about it is they carve outside so they're on standing hay they carve outside. It's all really lovely and um, just just a nice environment for the, the cow to have her carve and um, then come into the milking herd. And we then obviously have milk then that is a mix of late lactation and then early lactation. So because our milking herd carving block is from August right through till Christmas, mm-hmm. We sort of, it's designed so that we get uh, what used to be called, if you go back and look in the beautiful old British sort of territorial cheese notelets that Mm -hmm. that they were called early, mid and late ripening um, cheeses. So that was, I'm pretty sure, related to the cow's lactation. So the milk obviously hugely varies during lactation so it's it's yes yeah, it's it's really interesting it coming into the vet and that's when it's a discussion about do we farm for cheese making or is the cheese making just an off shoot of the farming and for us I don't think you can answer I don't think it fits into either it's just part of a huge tapestry that works I feel like we don't try and pigeonhole too much of either do you, uh-huh. Does that make sense, Jenny? That that that. Yeah. Um, so it's quite holistic in a way, isn't it? It's a bigger. Yeah. That, yeah. You know, the cow, the cows, in a way, ha- have to. We don't have a different farm they can go and graze. So if the paddocks are a bit dandelioning or something, that's almost our job in the cheese dairy to to weave our magic and make it into a, a cheese that's still delicious um you know but equally sometimes we're like ah hang on this 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 cheese perhaps we need to look at having a little bit more night milk and less morning milk or Mm -hmm. you know changing those ratios rather than changing the whole of the way that we we feed our cows or yeah i mean yeah there must be lots of different things you can tweak yeah i mean i always Um, get whenever i talk to you know to a cheesemaker they just need to say many variables so it's where do you you start um yeah i mean it's yeah the variables are are brilliant but also many and and multifaceted yes and they're so interacting aren't they so 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 tell us your cheese i mean perhaps we should talk about you know perhaps you described as though somebody people must be listening to this perhaps who haven't tried a Cheshire cheese, or perhaps haven't tried Applebee's Cheshire cheese, because there is a difference um, between you know industrially produced cheese and cheese made on a smaller scale in in terms of the milk, in terms of the production, in terms of method. So you've made these love these beautiful cheeses using the milk from your cows. Do you mature them on the farm, or do they get sent off to to cheesemongers who yeah. then take them on? So once once they've come you know out of the vat and into their moulds. And they go into the press room, which are all the sort of turn of the century hand presses, and they're pressed overnight. We wrap them in calico cloth to allow the cheese to breathe, which I think is a, again, you just touched on the the more industrial types of British territorial cheese. And I think that's a really big difference that we don't wax it or put it in plastic, Mm. that allowing the the cheese to breathe. And, And I was just looking this morning. There's um, a cheese that's a couple of days old that because the weather's been lovely and warm, it's grown this huge whiskery mould that's <laughs> an inch and a half long. It is beautiful. It's like a uh, sea anemone. You know, as I open the door, it's sort of wafting. Waving. It's, yeah, it's lovely. absolutely <laughs> glorious. Yeah. So allowing the, the moisture to come out and the flora and fauna of our storerooms to go in. So, yes, the the cheeses are wheeled round on a trolley into our storerooms which in fact 
both of them, because we have two that connect to each other, they were both parlours. So one was, I think, the very first rotary parlour that Paul's grandparents put in, got a long, long time ago. We've since we've since built another one just um, a, a sort of a little bit further towards the cow sheds. But that then connects to a very old herringbone parlour that was the original. And that's all beautiful with the bricks and the timbers and oh, just the smell when you walk in is... is yeah, it, it, there's something really unique about it. I think mm. that maturation part of the cheese is also really important because it's very here and I have definitely we've taken our cheese to other customers and I've tried the cheese that's been part of you know the affiner yes. down say in Neil's yard uh, and it tastes I'm like oh gosh this is really this tastes of you um ah, rather than yeah uh, which I love I mean Cheshire is a crumbly cheese and it definitely absorbs its atmosphere i think they're little time capsules aren't they and as you unwrap it you get the the soil and the grass and the milk and you also get that sort of sense of place of where they were in the storeroom so there's Hmm. napoleonic timbers in our storeroom in the in the yard so there's a lot of history (laughs) there's a lot of um yeah, there's a lot of atmosphere. <laughs> but, um, and what did you... So you, is it Eastern Water about sort of three months? Is, is there an optimum peak age at which you, like, you would like your Cheshire cheese to be eaten? Yeah, so again, a couple of years ago, we felt that we were putting so much into the milk that when the cheese was maturing for sort of six six to eight months, it, it, had, it had lost that juicy, fresh, milky grassiness. So we... we brought the age profile a little bit younger so at the moment we're we're sort of selling it six to eight weeks ish and then yeah and then it um there are lots of customers that then like to mature it and there's a funny time so we talk about our Cheshire having a a, a funny time that sometimes it can it can throw its toys at the pram and and (laughs) the the acidity um, pictures because there's a lot of lactic acid in in uh, cheese making but particularly in in cheshire so it's slightly pitches and then it tends to just oh oh beautifully mellow off and and reach sort of shrugging off a bit of a tight uh jacket after a day's work you know that's sort of <laughs> it's oh. a nice analogy yeah yeah, yeah. Or, or, yeah yeah unloosening a waistband and yeah and it sort of becomes a bit more relaxes but mm-hmm. I, I will never bore of that because equally I quite like it when it's a bit punchy and a bit more zesty. But we're finding because obviously the we haven't long made these changes on the farm. So every day is a, a learning curve and, <laughs> you know, each batch of cheese is like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. So we look back on our notes and yeah, yeah it, it definitely changes throughout the year by season, by lactation and definitely um i think that's one of the the joys the the, the nuances are to be celebrated um, yes i mean absolutely sure, yeah. i mean cheese is yeah it's it's sort of fascinating isn't it and hearing you talk about all these changes sarah and it, it really brings <laughs> it home i mean so in fact just to end on the on, on a note so the, you know a farmhouse cheese you know, this is a family cheese, isn't it, for you? Because this is your family history and, it, you know, it's connecting back to Paul's grandparents and to what, what and that would connect mm. back to what their their families had done and made. And are your, how do your children, are they interested in the cheese? Do they enjoy eating it? Is it, you know, are, are they, do they like watching the making of it? Do, do they play a part in that? Yes. Oh, my goodness, yes. So, uh, as I said before, when I was talking about grandma and the pram, um, weeding from the kitchen to the dairy. I I think because the, that is still our dairy, we haven't moved it. And I I wonder whether we are one of the last farmhouse cheesemakers left that that have that doorway between house and dairy. Oh. So it's in the same unit. It's you know it's on the same bricks and mortar. Um, mm. But the children love it. <laughs> they call it channel cheese. So they'll <laughs> and they'll lift and look through, obviously, with Paul and I and our team, Tom and Corey in, in there. And yeah, and the children, as they've grown older, have become more and more fascinated, I think, with, with a, the, the farming and 
you know, they're, they're really helpful and they really ask questions too, particularly our oldest children. Um, you know, why, why are you doing it like this? And mm. for them, I think that generation is very used to communicating about the environmental issues of food production. Um, you yes. know, we've, eldest son is coppicing our trees and we've planted a lot. Uh, I think they're very aware of their surroundings and then they all have to be involved in the cheese making they, they've, they've all come in the dairy or patted the butter or you know helped me sell it but mostly they enjoy sitting and eating it around the kitchen table with um, friends or when um, Neil's yard come and yeah being able to sit and eat something that you've you've so involved in it's such a part of your family and also they're hungry <laughs> got children yeah. and they can eat some cheese so also there's always a block of um you know there's a good there's a good wedge of cheshire always on the go and quite often doesn't get put away through the day it's just left out on the butcher's oh. block um, and also they love eating joe's cheese graham's cheese jamie's cheese yes uh, tim and simon's cheese so you know the the stitch will take it's a wonderful world of yeah. yes absolutely. it's brilliant yeah, yeah. it is it is brilliant. brilliant. So, yeah. Oh, Sarah, that's a wonderful image. I love that of, you know, of this, she's at the heart, you know, on the farm where it's made and being enjoyed. That's wonderful. So yeah, thank mm. you so much, because I know how busy you must be. So I really appreciate you taking taking the time to talk to us. That was lovely, Sarah. Thank you. Oh, no worries, Jenny. Thank you. Take care then. Bye-bye. Yeah, you too. Bye. Bye-bye. I'm a huge fan of Peter's Yard's crackers, and they go beautifully with cheese. All Peter's Yard's crackers are made in small batches using quality natural ingredients and their sourdough starter, slowly fermented for 16 hours for award-winning flavour and crunch. Visit petersyard.com forward slash shop, enter the code slice of cheese at the checkout to receive 25% off your first order. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. Very happy to have with me on a slice of cheese, Andy Hatch of Uplands Cheese in Wisconsin. Hello, Andy. Hello, Jenny. Thank you so much, Andy, for taking time to join us. It's it's lovely to have you on, on this episode. We're exploring the idea this week of farmhouse cheese, which I think in America is, is farmstead cheese. And I very much wanted to ask you about the sort of story of Uplands cheese. Tell, tell me how that is. It's a dairy farm. Is that is that right? Uh, yes, that's right. And uh, it's been a dairy farm for about 140 years, which is when this part of uh, Wisconsin was, was settled actually by some Cornish Oh. Uh, immigrants as, as well as you know some Norwegians and Germans and so they brought dairy cattle with them and dairy farming has been kind of the mainstay of of this part of the United States in Wisconsin and particularly our corner of Wisconsin since then uh, but this cheese in particular this farm rather in particular didn't start making its own cheese until the year 2000 so okay. in, in so scope quite... of our history re- relatively recent yeah, I was going to say that's interesting, and it's and tell us how how did you become because now it's your, you you started working at the farm is that right yourself I did yes yeah. this is not my family's farm uh, I I grew up in the area but started working here uh, when I got out of university for dairy science in Wisconsin to become a cheesemaker have to serve. Uh, apprenticeships, take classes, ultimately take a test. Uh, and anyway, this was the last apprenticeship uh, I served hmm. uh, in my early 20s and just uh, never left. And never up, left, uh, I was going to say, and <laughs> stayed. Yeah, brilliant. Yes. <laughs> so, that's so interesting. So you just said, that's such fascinating what you just told me. So Wisconsin, you have to study dairy making in, or- in order to be a cheesemaker. Is that right? That's right. It's the only state in the country that, that requires that. And it came with our immigrants, you know, I think the Central Europeans, you know, that model of uh, an apprentice and a journeyman and a master. Mm. Uh, and that, we've held on to that here. And in fact, I'm now in the early stages of trying to become a, a master cheesemaker, which wow. takes a number of years uh, and again, requires classwork and oral examinations, written examinations, etc. So it's a point of pride for the state. It's also, you know, you could say a, a bit of a protection of quality. You can't yes. just, uh, you know, put a vat into your garage and fire it up. 
That's yeah. so interesting. In fact, yeah. funny because I'm making another episode. It's about cheese education. Um, mm. And in Britain, we have the Academy of Cheese, which sort of studies cheese. And we have the School of Artisan Food, which runs cheese making courses. I mean, what, the impression I get when I talk to people in Britain is that it was very hard to access cheese making knowledge. You know, a lot of it is done by informally in a way, I suppose, by going around and working, you know, quite sensibly with other cheesemakers and learning and watching, you know, a bit like, I suppose, like a stage for, for chefs, you know. Um, so interesting that it was very structured. So did you get the cheese making bug? That, I mean, did you set out thinking you'd want to be a cheesemaker when you studied dairy? Uh, actually, no, I set out thinking that I wanted to milk cows and uh, ah. uh, working towards that, stumbled into cheesemaking and uh, which was lucky because I think like a lot of uh, farms now, I, I would have really struggled to support a family selling, you know, commodity fluid milk. And so oh, cheese yeah. Yeah, sort of changes the financial dimension of, of dairy farming. Uh, but also it gave me something that I was, I think, well suited to just temperamentally. And uh, it also gave me a very rich life that I wouldn't have expected. The ability to travel, to get into cities and, and meet different kinds of people is something that a lot of farmers don't have. And mm. uh, I didn't see that at the start, but that's been a, a big blessing. That, that's very interesting because actually, I don't know if you know, um, there's a cheese in Britain called Baron Bygold, made by Johnny Crickmore and Fen Farm Dairy, which is like a, a British brie. He makes it from, Johnny was a dairy farming background. It's made from raw milk. Yes, and he, yes, I know, I know Johnny. Do you know Johnny? Yes. yes. And Johnny said to me the same because, in fact, I had interviewed him and he said, Jenny, my life's been so rich. Yeah, exactly that. He said, it's very interesting. He said he met these wonderful mix of people. You know, he could go to, mm. you know, he might meet chefs, he might go to a, a show and, be, you know, be talking to the public selling, you know, trying to sell his cheese. And just this, he just said, it's so different from being a farmer on your own in <laughs> a farm. It's, it opened up this whole world for him. Yes, and uh, it, it makes it easier to learn. We're talking about, about cheese education. And one mm. thing to you know do it in a university setting, but of course, speaking to people from Britain or you know, we sell our cheese in you know, New York and Los Angeles. Just meet, meeting people whose lives are different from yours makes you learn, you know, as a person or as a business owner, and you know, broadens your perspective. And and, and as as important as it is as a farmer to, to be intimate with you know what you're doing your land mm -hmm. and your animals it, it can create tunnel vision ah yes out of habit uh, yeah if nothing else dealing with with the cheese market around the world helps snap you out of that do you tell us more about the cheese which is a very famous cheese pleasant ridge tell us tell us about that andy and what give me that sense of, of the farm the appropriate way to understand pleasant ridge is is to know that uh it is an extension of the way this farm was already being run, as opposed to, say, you know, a, a cheesemaker coming up with a cheese and, and trying to create milk to suit that. Uh, our farm is in the southern corner of Wisconsin, which, you know, uh, for thousands of years has been kind of what we call an oak savanna grassland. So mm. big, gnarly oak trees every few hundred feet and then miles and miles of hills and grass. So this farm, you could say, was sort of meant to graze cattle. Farmers that, that preceded me here had always uh, produced all of their milk in the spring, summer, and fall with the cows only on fresh pasture. That produces milk, as any farmer knows, just drinking milk out of his bulk tank, that produces milk that, that tastes different. And it was in the 90s when these farmers started to ask themselves, well, how could we take advantage of, of the flavor of this summer grass-fed milk? And so they looked to old world traditions, cheesemaking traditions that have been built around grass-fed milk. And of course, mountainous regions all over the world, you know, for hundreds of years, shepherds will take animals up into the mountains yeah. so they can make hay in the valley fields. And of course, cheesemaking then was just a way to preserve that milk from those mountain pastures. Mm. So they looked at those types of traditions and circled around, uh, you know, cheeses from the French and Swiss Alps, Gruyere, Comté, Beaufort. You know, those cheeses historically had been made with that summer grass fed milk. And so Pleasant Ridge was really our effort to borrow from that tradition, to make a style of cheese that is kind of meant to show off the flavor profile of, of grass fed milk. 
we're talking in late April. So is, 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 are you about to hit sort of, um, you know, so late spring? Is, is this when it starts to become very busy? Is this, is this the time when you will start making cheese? Then? Yes, yes. In fact, if we, I, it's, it's noon here uh, on a Friday. If, if we had pushed this talk off another week, I'm not sure I could have done it. <laughs> We're very uh, lucky to got you. Yeah, <laughs> wonderful. Just so I'm, in time. I'm sitting Phew. here in, yeah. in the farmhouse, looking out the window. Our cows are out on the fields now, and most of them have calved. We our, our whole herd calves in the spring, in time for the growth of the pastures. Right, uh, and it's green, but it's it's unusually cold. We're several weeks behind. Uh, the last several years, we would have already been making cheese by now, but I think we're oh. still a, a week out. So, we won't even start making Pleasant Ridge until the cows are are on a pasture diet. So they're out in the field now, and we're supplementing them their diet with hay. And right. As the grass starts to grow here over the next week, they'll eat less hay, more grass, less hay, more pasture uh-huh. rather, and yeah. eventually they'll just ignore the hay altogether be on an all-pasture diet, and that's when we start making cheese. So we kind of let the cows and the weather guide that decision. Right. And how big is your herd? How how many cows do you have? Uh, We milk about 200 cows. And is there a particular breed? I mean, have have you chosen for cheese making, or were these the cows, the dairy cows that that were on the farm already? I mean, you know, the breed. Uh, (laughs) It's an unusual herd of cows, actually. It's, It's the combination of, over the years, eight or nine different breeds. Oh, and we are still crossbreeding with the goal, really, of developing cows that work for our particular farm, which is rather unusual. Our cows are outside 365 days a year. Wow. Uh, so in the heat of the summer and in, in the cold in the winter when they're not being milked. So there's a, a ruggedness and an athleticism we need in our cows that, that most yeah. cows living in a barn wouldn't need. So there's certain physical traits we're looking for, and then also certain milk characteristics that are tailored to the requirements of, of the two cheeses we make. Uh, and so by combining different breeds, you know, you'll, you'll get cows that are unusual, different combinations of the traits of these breeds. But when you find daughters that, that have the, the combined set of traits you want, when you find mm. these cows, you, you continually save daughters all over generations, get more and more of the cows you want. Uh, so this this yes. crossbreeding has been predates me on this farm. It goes back uh, over thirty years, uh, and so we we've just had about two hundred calves in the last six weeks, and it's exciting Gosh. to you know see another generation and pick daughters from your favorite cows and watch yes. it keep going. It sounds all you know tidy and dialed in, but like like any genetics, <laughs> it's, it's an imperfect yeah. science. Yeah, um, but uh, we we have a pretty special herd of cows. I was just thinking how fascinating it is because if you're breeding your own, if you're crossbreeding cows, that makes your cheese even more unique, then doesn't it? Because then, in a way, you're if these are breeds that you're you know you're breeding these cow, these cows for the traits that you want for your farm, then it's very much an expression. So it's not just the the land that they're grazing on; it's also the animals. Isn't that interesting? That that are sort of unique to you in a way, I suppose. Yes, no, that, that's I think you've touched on the, the two most important ways in which we try to create a cheese that's distinctive. You know, it is an, uh, number one, an unusual herd of cows based on our own kind of novel genetics. And then number two, you know, we only make this cheese while the cows are eating our fresh pastures. So neither, both of these conditions, the pastures and the cows, couldn't be found anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not to say that, you know, we're better than anybody else making farmstead cheese, but it is to say that the cheese coming off this farm can't be made elsewhere. And that really, it has a certain romantic appeal. I won't mm-hmm. deny that. But also just as a, as a competitive business strategy, it's appealing because uh, it means we're making something unique. Rather than making a generic product, we'd have to bring to market and compete with other producers, say, of cheddar, based on you know price, marketing budget, et cetera. Uh, we, we sort of try to remain in a category of one. Right. Well, yes, which you are. That's, isn't that interesting? I mean, that's very powerful. I, I, I do. I come across that in the world of, you know, that the importance of placing cheese and for artisan cheesemakers who are, your cheeses are, are raw milk. Is that am I, am I right in saying that? It is. Yes, and yeah, that is also uh, absolutely key to transmitting the character of the land and animals uh, to the cheese. That's so fascinating. We were talking to, um, I was talking to Bronwyn Percival about microbes in 
cheese, you know, and the richness of the, you know, the microbial possibilities within raw milk, you know, that hasn't been, milk that hasn't been heat treated. So you've just got, you know, you've got a lot more microbes there. You've got a lot more potential in a way, haven't you? It's something yes. which a lot, yes, it's very, very fascinating. So, t- so t- tell us more about Pleasant Ridge. Describe, so you've sort of talked about this mountain, being influenced by this mountain style. So what does it look like and what's the sort of size? And I'm afraid I haven't tried it, which I'm very rueful about. What? Tell me about it. Oh, we, we, we will fix that, Jenny. Thank you. Oh, uh, thank you, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it is made in, in a style of classic Alp cheeses, Beaufort and Gruyere, and that the, the curd is cooked and pressed and then ripened with a, a natural washed rind. So the, the rind is washed in brine as it's mm-hmm. aged. Our wheel is smaller, about four to five kilos. Oh, Most right. of these mountain cheeses from, from the Alps are, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 kilos. Yeah. Uh, so it's a smaller wheel, uh, and we make about 80 wheels a day throughout our grazing season, which is about 200 days of the year. So next week, we'll probably start making cheese. We'll do it for about 200 days in a row. Gosh. And make about 16,000 of these wheels that are tucked away into the ripening rooms here on our farm. Ah, lovely. will be sold the following year once they're aged about a year. Oh, gosh. So it's a year. That's a a long time, isn't it? Yes. You've tied up all your your money for for a year, but you've got last year's <laughs> stock, presumably. Did you start making that cheese, Andy? Or was that the cheese that was being made on the farm already? Oh, you said that the people, you know, she started making the farm in 2000. Yes, um, they, was they that, were was already that... making Pleasant Ridge when, when I arrived as an apprentice. Uh, right. They started in 2000, I arrived in 2007. Right. Is, have you kept the same cheese or has it changed, you know, in the, in the years that you've been on the farm? Have you have you tweaked it and worked with it? Ah, ah good question. The the sort of the principles behind the cheese have not changed. You know, our own herd of cows, raw milk, only when they're on fresh pasture, mm-hmm. you know, aged for about a year with a natural rind. But of course, as with any farm, season to season, the conditions change. the The herd is continually involved, evolving. So, on a seasonal level, there's there's variation, and of course, with an aged raw milk cheese, particularly one where it's a single herd of cows that are being rotated daily through different pastures, mm. that sort of situation will always yield you know variability, batch to batch, almost like different vintages of wine. So, you know, while our philosophical approach to making the cheese has has not wavered uh the cheese is of course always changing mm. uh which if, if we were a big business trying to sell you know a homogenous product to a, a huge marketplace would be uh you know could drive you crazy but <laughs> for a, a small producer like us and, and for customers especially who appreciate complexity and and nuance and can accept the variability comes along with that it, it actually makes for, I think, a more interesting product. Yeah, it's not interesting because I'm a food writer, Andy, not a cheese writer, but I sort of fell in love with cheese through Niels Yard Dairy in London through initially as a customer and then through my writing I got to, you know, interview Randolph and he's a wonderful man. Um, and one of the things I've always loved, you know, that Niels Yard Dairy, they give you tastings of cheese and I would... And it was like this revelation of like, actually, you know, I can go in and say, oh, yes, I, you know, give me, I like to try the Montgomery's cheddar. And I sort of think, oh, I know what Montgomery's cheddar's like. And you think, oh, no, actually, I don't, because it tastes different batch to batch. And it was this sort of revelation as someone, you know, who, you know, I'm not a cheese maker. I'm someone who's buying and eating cheese and enjoying it. And you think, and this is the, as you said, it's this, you know, it's very exciting, isn't it? When you realise that this, this food changes, you know, and it's been made with great skill and care, um, but it's not going to be consistent and you know, it's not going to be repetitive. It's going to be like, yes. oh, I do want to try it because today, oh, it's like this. It's, you know, it's particularly marmite or it's, oh, it's got, you know, a different note to it or the texture slightly different. It's that sort of fun of what's it going to be like? I don't know. It's fun. Yeah. Yes. And, and it's, it's something to celebrate. Neil's Yard, more than anyone else in the English speaking world, has, you know, kind of taught us how to think and talk about cheese in, in that way. I, I worked there for a spell, actually, oh. and uh, they, it was very influential for, for me. 
in the Covent Garden shop or the Borough shop or behind uh, both, scenes? In as the, well oh, as, yeah, but as well as the arches. And it actually, I, I started here in 2007 as an apprentice. So I was tucked back in the corner of the ripening rooms, you know, yeah. all by myself, turning wheels of cheese as <laughs> one does when you're the yeah. first year apprentice. And uh, in walked uh, Randolph, uh, you know, on a tour of, of Wisconsin dairies. Mm. And, uh, you know, Randolph was always good at kind of, you know, lingering off to the side, watching yes. quietly, asking yeah. those sly questions. So he hung out next to me for a while. And he, eventually he said, well, you know, I understand you don't make cheese here in the winter. Like, what are you going to do? And, you know, like any 22 year old, I, I was I was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> and he said, well, wh why don't you come work for me? Brilliant. Uh, so when we finished the cheesemaking season here that, that first year uh, in October, I went over and spent uh, six months oh, uh, in England. Yeah. And it was eye opening for me. I mean, the, the farm here had already been on its course with, uh, you know, milking the herd seasonally on pasture, making Pleasant Ridge. For me to go to Neil's yard and and learn how to, they talked about cheese like this to their yes. customers was, yep. was revelatory for me. And it was also very interesting for me to taste cheese, you know, as a matter of course, these 70 cheeses they sell every day mm. in the shop, they're all tasted yeah. and talked about. So it yep. was a huge broadening of, of, you know, my exposure to the world of cheese. And so I, I owe a huge debt to uh, not just to Neil's Yard, but there were a number of British cheesemakers who, who took me in for short stints. And ah, brilliant. I learned a lot. There's a lot of generosity. It's one of the things I love about the British cheese scene. I don't know if it's, it's you know, maybe not just the British, but well, that's the scene I know. But there's a sort of camaraderie among it, you know, and people are very generous about sharing knowledge, I feel. Um, with each other and and sort of and supporting each other through crises of which you know there are lots um, and and I love that sort of yeah this sort of feeling I don't know friendship in in that world yes very much and uh, it's a defining characteristic I think of the uh, of the cheese world and not just uh, Britain certainly it, that it feels similarly in the U S uh, yeah we we uh, send apprentices back and forth still. Hmm. Yeah, I think there's a sense that, you know, as artisan cheesemakers or retailers, we don't so much compete with each other as we do with industrialized, boring cheese. And yeah, the, you yeah. Know, I, I think, think you're right, yes. The rising tide ought to lift all of our ships. You know, the, the more somebody is switched on to, to Montgomery's cheddar, I think the more apt they are to also buy my cheese. That's a very good point. And that's very much how Randolph, I think, has always seen it. You know, like, just make people you know, bring, get people to understand and appreciate good food. And that's good for everyone who makes good food. You know, you're not in, mm -hmm. yeah, in a, in a way that's, yes, you're not in competition with each other as food, as artisan cheesemakers, you're in competition with, with people, you know, with dull mass produced cheese. And yeah. so, in fact, I wanted to ask you, Andy, I was interested. So this, you know, and your cheese is very, Pleasant Ridge is very acclaimed, isn't it? It's one that wins a lot of prizes and it's found a very appreciative audience. Do you think that have other farmers in Wisconsin looked at what you've done and your story, the story of Pleasant Ridge, and been inspired by it? I, you know, is that ripple? Is there a rippling effect, so to speak? Uh, yes. I, and in fact, our business being about 22 years old was part of a a blossoming here in Wisconsin mm. in the early 2000s. There, there are a handful of other similar businesses who started making farmstead cheese at about the same time. And so we're amongst the class of, of producers here uh, who I think are, are credited with ins inspiring, if not themselves, transforming the, the dairy landscape because there are a lot of large businesses here, you know, co compared to whom we are awfully small, but mm. we, we've, you know, I think changed perceptions about what's possible in the market and, you know, the attention given to small production cheeses like us has, you know, galvanized a, a shift in the larger industry. So, uh, and so that it's been a very exciting 20 years in that sense in Wisconsin. Uh, there has been a lot of growth of diversity and new products, Looking forward, you know, it's. I think we need another blossoming or, or, or mm. renaissance here. It's uh, it's getting harder to start small companies. Oh, you know, the, the yeah. economic headwinds are, are worse than ever, and regulatory issues haven't made it easy. Uh, so there's some 
concern. I think that uh, it's it's not as easy as it once was for a farm to start making its own cheese. But that's a shame, isn't that's, it? Yes. That's something we're talking about and and yeah. you know trying to improve. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, because in fact, because of I've been writing about food in Britain for decades, and I've so I've seen that you know a sort of rise within Britain of, of cheese of sort of craft cheese making. I suppose you call it artisan cheese making. Um, you know, people joining some of the older families and and making interesting new cheeses and interesting mix. I think in Britain of the traditional cheese making, you know, people making you know cheddar or Lancashire or Cheshire, and then you know, and then someone like Martin got making St James, which you know, which is always changes. You know, it's it's always just definitely St James's cheese, but it's going to taste different yes, every every yes. time. You know, which is sort of yeah. the the fun and Martin's very articulate about that. About that's one of the pleasures of his cheese. You know that he's yeah exactly what, as we were saying, but it is interesting how yes what can be a lovely exciting time can then can then fall away I suppose and what you need is that new yeah but you need opportunity don't you it's it, it's the economics of it it's got to work for for the for the farmer hasn't it yes and what I mean, what is the sentiment like in in Britain now with small scale farm businesses is uh, everybody's still riding out the shock of the pandemic or is it yeah can you tell is there is there optimism or it's I don't think optimism <laughs> I think yeah. I think you yeah. know actually funny enough because um in you know COVID hit cheesemakers terribly and actually one of the things I did very early on in the in the first few weeks of pandemic was I sort of really you know, we're all stuck at home you know not allowed to go out it was in mm. lockdown and mm. I saw things like so Johnny selling his Baron Bygod at half price and I was like, mm-hmm. what's happening? And I got on the phone to a lot of people I know, you know, Niels Dairy and the cheesemakers like Graham Kirkham and and realised it was disastrous, you know, because, mm-hmm. um, you know, there was no export, there was no wholesale, there were no restaurants. So they were left with cheeses, perishable cheeses, you know, trying to sell them. And I wrote a piece for my, I sort of commissioned myself to write an article and put it on my website, um, British Cheese Crisis. And it sort of went viral and actually really I, I helped. Oh, did you yeah. see it, Andy? Yes. Ah. Yep. And actually that, that was like a running call. And I just literally like, if you want to help, you know, buy cheese, you know, support cheesemongers and cheesemakers, mm. you need base, you know, they both need each other. You know, we need the cheese yes. shops to come through this. So that was quite yeah. a, a yeah. shock. And I think the, yeah. then I've sort of went back and caught up with cheesemakers and they all said to me, we've really diversified what we do. You know, Graham Kirkham had, you know, has got a farm shop. I think they're just trying to like not put all your eggs into one basket, you know, don't rely just on wholesale, have mm. a retail outlet as well. You know, just try and be more... I suppose have more resilience built in your system where you can. But of course, we've also had Brexit and oh, yeah. and so there's, yeah. um, and that changes the whole, what's going to happen to farming and there's a lot of, you know, it's like what will happen? We don't know. It's all a bit vague at the moment from the government. Um, so so I think farmers are in quite an anxious place, actually, I would say. Yes, that's the, that's the sense I've gotten. Um, it's, it's not gotten any easier, for sure. I think the article you wrote, had reverberations over here even i think the new yorker cited it they wrote a it piece did, yes, they, they about think, yes, uh, how a cheese yeah. goes extinct or something yes and, that's right yes uh, yes um, and i was credited yeah i'd done this sort of you know because it was from yeah it was from the heart that piece i wrote um i actually had tears in my eyes you know it was very moving these are people i talked to over the years and it was always been very joyful like you know how do you make your cheese all lovely you know tell me and then i was talking to people you could hear the stress and the anxiety and the worry you know, how do I keep growing? Graham Kirkham's saying to me, how do I, you know, normally I sell 120 cheeses a week. I sold nine, you know, Jenny, how do I keep my farm, my family, my dairy, get on nine cheeses? You know, it was a disaster. So, so I wanted to write a, as powerful a piece as I could, you know, and do justice to it. Um, mm. And it was amazing. What was wonderful, Andy, I think, which I think really touched cheesemakers in Britain was that there was such an outpouring of love for cheese from the British public. And my, my social media feed was just for weeks on Twitter, which is people telling me mm. they'd read my piece, bought cheese. Then they tell me it's arrived. And I, and everyone who contacted me, I, I replied saying, thank you, thank you so much, you know, and mm. enjoy your cheese. And it was just amazing. And yeah. yeah, and I think a lot of people discovered that actually they do. And the cheesemakers, I think Joe Schneider said to me, it just really mattered to us to know that people cared, you know, as well as the financial thing, it was actually the emotional thing of knowing it matters to people what we do. That's pretty yeah. powerful. And I, I haven't spoken to Joe in, in well, two years. Uh, but from this distance, it, it looks like he had a opened up online sales, and that was a big deal for them. Yeah, it was because yeah. they had to. Yeah, a lot of you know you can now buy, I and mean, that's what's quite interesting is that really that online, the chance now to try and to 
buy cheese directly from producers is really interesting from cheesemakers mm-hmm. who before mm-hmm. didn't um uh yeah it's very is that something that you do andy or do you or do you have you know have you got sort of route to market in different ways that you yeah, yes we do uh sell through our website and uh, we've had in general a similar reaction to, to the one you described with the british cheesemakers that we were sort of compelled to diversify and now see that as an you know, an appealing strategy. Mm. So we always had website sales. They were pretty incidental, uh, but they became a much more important part of the big picture in, in 2020 and 2021. And now, you know, we'd like to keep that going. Yeah. We're contemplating opening a farm shop, which is something oh, wonderful. we've never had. The Graham um, Kirkham did that and he found it, he's yeah. really enjoyed it, I think. And this is, the other thing is, of course, he can support other cheesemakers because he's selling not just his cheese, but other other cheeses. Um, it's very interesting yeah. for me watching the cheesemakers sort of, you know, become cheesemongers in a way as well. It's, uh... <laughs> all of us, all of us awkward introverts all of a sudden have to become... <laughs> You know, w- extroverts and, and engage with the public, but it's it's something we're talking about a lot here. And I made the point early on that it's you know having a cheese business as a, as a farmer you know leads to a richer life. You're out yes. engaging with people, and so you know we're trying to think through here now. Uh, well, do we want to? Does that also mean that really engaging to more directly with the the public, bringing people onto your farm, is is that going to be a good thing? Is that yeah. going to you know improve the quality of our lives? Is it going to drive us crazy? You know what will it what will it bring to our farm to really start to welcome the public here? And you know, part of me thinks that, and I'm not the only one, obviously, that it, it is kind of the next important frontier for particularly farmstead cheese making is to really show people what we're doing and to give them these kind of a peek behind the curtain at at, at a real experience. And you know, the argument goes: you know, the more we're all buying things on on Amazon, the more rare these experiences become where you actually mm. touch something, buy it from the person who makes it. And so, you know, here we would, we would call it agritourism. You've got a certain uh-huh. degree of it in, in Britain, of course, and it's not yes. a new, it's not a new concept, but it's, it's speaking Italy. They have, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's very interesting. Yes. How do you know, yeah, there's been a lot of pressure on farms to diversify. And of course, adding value to milk by tinted cheese is a very old, thing isn't it an ancient yep. thing an ancient way for you know to change to add value to milk in that way um but i think you're right isn't it because firstly very we're in a world that's very disconnected from food production and um, i think lots of people just don't realize quite how much hard work it's one of the things it's a repeated um sort of refrain on this on this series of podcasts is like the hard work and the care it's one of the things i've wanted to do through my interviews with with cheesemakers is to let people understand you know that there's an awful lot, especially when it's your own milk, you know, you've got the care for the animals, you know, the care mm. for the farm, for the pasture, um, you know, that's, and the cheese making and the care that goes into the cheese. So that's just, that's a lot of work, isn't it? Oh, endless. You can't even really call it work or you would, the thought would overwhelm you. It just, it needs to be something you commit, you know, your life to. Wonderful. Essentially. Yeah. I was going to ask Andy, I wanted because you said you mature Pleasant Ridge for a year. And is there a moment then, and we talked about the variabilities, you know, within it because of the what the cows are feeding on and the changes. So when you when you taste it, are, do you have a sort of, is there a lovely moment when you would go in and taste a batch? And then is there a real, is there a thrill when you think, oh, you know, I love this, this batch made, you know, I don't know, in, in May or in June when the grass was, you know, particularly full of clover or whatever it is. I, this is tasting wonderful. Do you, is that, do you get these satisfactions mm. then when, after all that patient waiting? Yes. And it's, it's satisfaction at times. It's joy at times. It's concern. I mean, if I, I have young children and it's been really interesting to, as I raise children, realize how similar it is to, you know, aging cheese. So yeah, there are there are moments of of pride and and, and moments where despair yeah, you have the trouble <laughs> falling asleep at night. Yes, yes. yes so yeah. uh, and, and so tasting our cheese is yes, it's probably the most gratifying part of what we do. I, oh, I have a yes. love of of the physical work, and so in the summer, milking cows and making cheese every day. You've got to enjoy, uh, you know, working hard, you know, being exhausting yourself. There's a, mm. there's a sport like satisfaction in that. 
but of course, you're making cheese every day. You tuck it away into the cheese caves, and we won't taste it for six, seven months、mm. after we've made it. So then, once we stop making cheese in the fall and the winter, everything slows way down, and that's kind of when we spend the most time in the caves tasting cheese. And、uh-huh. it's it's a little yeah, it's a little bit like watching、uh, your Child ride a bicycle for the first time, or it's you sort of see what you have wrought, and yeah,、um, yeah, it's it's very satisfying and and but sometimes confounding, and particularly with you know a cheese like ours, like I've said, raw milk, single herd, you know, rotationally grazed through pasture. There, there's variability, so、mm. it feels as much of like a discovery as it does a.、Uh, You know, a, a a measurement of something you manufactured. It's, oh, it's, interesting. Yes, there are、so、surprises. That, that excitement.、Always. Yes, yes,、mm. which is yeah, wonderful. Oh, listen, Andy, I've taken up so much of your time, but it's been so fascinating to talk to you. Thank you.、Um, I really appreciate you. Thank you for coming on. You're very welcome, Jenny. Happy to. Lovely. Take care, Andy. Bye bye. You too. Bye bye. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Thank you so much for listening to a slice of cheese. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, it would be lovely if you could rate us on wherever you found this podcast. It will make such a difference to us. So I hope you'll enjoy us again. Thank you very much.